The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you turn your Bibles tonight to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, I can't tell you how good it feels to say that. <laughs> it's been a few years since I've been in the book of Acts, I'm probably only two years, um, but I've actually, it's actually been almost five years since I began the book of Acts, and that was on a Wednesday night uh, in our Wednesday night Bible studies. So I thought, rather than just going you know, through Peter's life and then ending when he actually started to do the right thing, we'd continue with Peter just a few lessons in the book of Acts before we start on the book of 1 Peter. And so it's been quite a while for me here, and I love the book of Acts. Uh, it's got to be my favorite book of the entire Bible, and we'll get into some reasons for that in, in a few moments, but it's a wonderful book. Alistair Begg once said that a good church is a Bible-centered church. Nothing is as important as this, not a large congregation, not a witty pastor, or not tangible experiences of the Holy Spirit. I thought that was a fitting quote to begin our service with this evening because tonight, hopefully, we're going into the Bible, into the Word of God, to see how we should be experiencing the Holy Spirit within our church and within our lives. As a believer, what does the Spirit do for you? What does it do in your life? How has he affected you since he's come to live inside of you? And how is it affecting our church? I think those are really important questions, and I think questions we find some of the answers to as we begin looking at the book of Acts. Imagine you were out one day, and you saw this job posting. It said, we are looking for an employee to take on a mission that will involve frequent confrontation, discomfort, and at times, very severe persecution. The purpose of your mission, should you choose to accept it, will be to convince the world that a convicted and now executed criminal is God. The world must simply apologize for all the wrong they've ever done, turn to him, put their faith in him, and live from this point forward as a slave of this executed criminal. You must bring this message not only to your friends, your neighbors, and those in your city, but you must also bring this message to the most remote locations on the entire planet so that someday people from every tongue, kindred, tribe, and nation will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. If we ever saw a job posting like that, we would assume it was a prank, right? We, we would assume that somebody was playing some kind of cruel joke, that, that they're pretending like there's this job available. But as you read the, the job posting, it's very clear that, A, the job is completely impossible, and B, there's not a soul on the planet that would choose to accept it, right? I mean, the idea of, you're going to take this job, it's going to require a lot of you, it's going to require everything of you. In fact, it might require your life and What you're supposed to do is convince the world that an executed criminal is the Son of God who came to die and save people from their sins. And you're supposed to tell this message to all those people who have supposedly sinned against this God. It it sounds absolutely impossible and almost almost ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, I, I understand from a biblical standpoint, you all know where we're coming from and where we're heading to. But from a human perspective... This job sounds a little crazy. It sounds insane. The the job posting would be a prank. Well, what if the job posting went on to say that the qualifications for the job are that you must oftentimes be disobedient, 
You must be very slow learners. You must be impatient. You must be cowardly. You must be regularly weak in your faith. You must struggle with pride. Those are just the character traits that they're looking for in this job posting. But not only that, when it comes to your social status, um, you must have no social influence. In fact, probably reverse social influence. So that when you decide to go one direction, everybody else wants to go the opposite direction. That's the, you know, the type of person, the social status that you have. You must be on the bottom of the social totem pole. You must be lacking in education. You must be completely broke. You must have been recently completely broken. You must be hated by religious leaders. And you must be a threat to the occupying government. Now, (laughs) those would be some pretty detailed and crazy qualifications for a job posting like the one of the absolutely impossible mission we just spoke about, wouldn't they be? And yet, when we look at the disciples, who do we find? When we look at Peter and these apostles, what, what are they like? Well, they're oftentimes disobedient. Even after Jesus resurrected again and he said, go and wait for me in Galilee, what do they do? They go to Galilee and then they go back fishing. They go back to their old trade. They, they change, I mean, I'm in the garden, pray, wait up, pray, three opportunities, H1, they failed. They're oftentimes disobedient. They're very slow learners. You go through the gospel and you find time and time and time again that Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, and that he's going to rise again. And every single time, they just ignore everything he said. They're not getting it. Nothing is clicking. They're slow learners. They're impatient. Right? They're constantly wanting Christ to be made king now. This is during Jesus' ministry. They were constantly waiting for him to bring his kingdom. Jesus, what's going on? Just bring that kingdom. And then they didn't understand why when Jesus drew a crowd, it seemed like he tried to push people away. Like his goal wasn't to just be king now. That's what they wanted. They wanted a kingdom. In fact, they wanted a position. Right? They were, they were struggling with pride all the time, fighting among one another. Who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They were cowardly. As soon as Jesus is put to death, their mantra is duck and run for cover. And and they hide out in this upper room for three days, terrified to leave because they're terrified that somebody will see that they were with Jesus and try and do the same to them that they did to Jesus. They're just cowards. Not even only one of them showing up at the cross. They were regularly weak in faith. We find through the Gospels, Jesus looking at them and saying, why are you so fearful? Why why is it that you have no faith? Or why are you worried about the bread? Why are you worried about bringing bread? Why do you have such little faith? So these, these are guys who are regularly weak in faith. And all the social character traits that I described to you of their social weakness, their, um, their low position in the social structure, they apply perfectly to the disciples. Right? They were not men who were educated. They were not men of influence. They were not religious, religiously accepted. Um, they would be, in fact, looked upon as the gruff fishermen who they, they had their, their lowly job in Galilee. Okay? The important people, they worked in Jerusalem. They worked in the temple. These were the men that Jesus chose for this absolutely impossible, bordering on crazy mission. And so this evening, what I want to do is open up the Word of God and see why Jesus' plan makes sense. 
why all of this, the, as crazy as it sounds, when you actually start plotting, plotting it out on paper, it's like, but it all makes sense because of one thing. This is what John MacArthur said of the disciples. He said, Jesus was appointing men to the formidable task of being apostles, proxies for him after he departed the earth, men with power and authority to speak and act on his behalf. You might think he would scour the whole earth to find the most gifted and qualified men. Instead, Jesus singles out a small group of men, diverse and yet common group of men, with unexceptional talents and average abilities. And when I hear what John MacArthur said there, I said, that's, that's generous. These, what, seven fishermen, a tax collector, a religious zealot, um, one who was just James the Less, don't, you don't even know what he did, you just know he was little or unimportant. When we look at these guys, we see nothing important. Probably the most important guy in the group would have been Judas Iscariot, probably the most educated. So we will look tonight in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is written by Luke. Luke is a physician. His writings are considered, even by secular historians, as marvelous works of history. Luke is very detailed in his events. And I think it's wonderful how God used his personality as he wrote the book of Luke to give us historical details that the other gospel writers didn't give. And then God used Luke to write the continuing history of the church in the book of Acts. Acts is, a, is an amazing book. I said it's my favorite book, and it's because it acts as a bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles. Right? This is a massively important book for the church. We need to get this. I, I would love it if you walked out of this place, if not for anything else, excited to read the book of Acts. You go from the Gospels, and you see Jesus ascend to heaven, And then you open up the book of Romans, and you're introduced to a character named Paul. Who is Paul? What is this all about? What is a church? I mean, how does that function? I mean, we get this tiny glimpse in the book of Matthew into what a church is, but but really the foundation of the church, the, the setting up of the leadership of the church, the gospel going from Jerusalem to to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth, all of that happens in the book of Acts. And so all of the rest of the New Testament makes sense. Because we have this wonderful book that shows how the church was founded. And as a church, as a believer, where else would it be good for us to go than the book of Acts to learn how the church should function and how the church should run and and what the church should be doing? The book of Acts is is an amazing, wonderful book. And what I want to see tonight is three things. I want us to see the commission is given, the commission is given, the power is promised, and then the obedience is demonstrated. And so we'll be reading a few verses tonight. We'll start in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke writes, The former trees I have made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Luke begins and he reminds Theophilus, he reminds the readers that he's written a prior trees, that this is part two of the history of Jesus Christ. And then he reminds us that, that the gospel, the resurrection, is established historically reliable event. Right? There's many witnesses. And then he says that he was speaking to the apostles of the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of God is God's rule or reign. So it wasn't like Jesus was here on earth just speaking about what heaven was like the whole time he was alive for those 40 days. Jesus was here and he was talking about this is how God's kingdom, God's rule and reign will work. And this is what that will look like in the lives of believers. And this is what it should look like in the life of the church. It's God's rule and reign over the church, over his people. So that's what Jesus has described to them. Verse number four. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. I, I love this verse because it's like Jesus says, I have all these commandments. I have all this stuff for you to do. You're about to go out and start the church. This is going to be wonderful. This is going to be awesome. But right now you need to get in a room and just wait. Don't do anything. Don't even think about starting the work. Why? Because you don't have the Holy Spirit yet. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, there is absolutely nothing that you can do that will be fruitful. Everything you do will be futile. And so just stop right now, sit down, and wait for your power because you are useless on your own. Verse number five. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And this is the disciples, right? They're always wondering about the kingdom. They always want to know when Jesus is going to rule and reign and be king. And so they ask this question, and Jesus is very uh, short with them. He says in verse 7, And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. In other words, don't worry about it. You don't need to know that. Sometimes we approach the Bible and we just think God owes us every answer to every question we can come up with. And that's just not true. God actually doesn't owe us anything and everything he's given us is a wonderful gift. But listen, when it comes to God's plan and how he chooses to work out his plan and what he has for us, our job is to honestly be obedient. We don't need to understand every part of that. And so he said, uh, disciples said, Jesus, just tell us how this is going to work out. Tell us what our future is going to look like. Tell us what the history, when is the kingdom coming? Let us, give us a date. And he says, don't worry about it. That's not your problem. I have something more important for you to worry about right now. And that, we find that in verse 8. But, and this is the power promised. And, and I know I said my outline is the commission is given and the power is promised. But it, really what's cool about these verses is that you can't separate the two. Right? There's no real distinction. The commission is given as the power is promised. Those two things come together. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And this is the crazy commission of Christ where he takes these men who are unqualified and we might even consider them disqualified to serve Christ. And he says, I'm going to use you men to take this truth, to take the gospel here in this city, but not only in the city, into our whole province of Judea, into the surrounding area, to, to where all or most of the Jews live. And then you're going to take it not only into this province, but you're going to go to, to Samaria, a place where our enemies are. You're going to take it to the people that you think ill of. And then it's not going to stop there. You're going to take this gospel and you're going to bring it to the remotest 
places on the planet, to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every kindred, they're all going to know the gospel, and there'll be people from all of those tribes and nations and tongues that will someday worship Christ at the throne. And this is their commission. For us, it might be helpful to think of Jerusalem as our hometown. Here's Chatham. You take the gospel to a place like Chatham. But not only that, you're going to go out a little bit beyond that. You're going to go to places in, in our community, people that are kind of like us. And so, yes, we're in our hometown, but we're also going to go to places surrounding our hometown. And then we're going to go not just to, to the people that are like us and the people that we might consider one of our community, but we're going to take this gospel to our enemies, to the people who it's very, Ill of, very easy to think ill of, to the people who in many ways hate us. And then we're going to take this gospel and we're going to take it everywhere we possibly can, to all people. Oswald J. Smith said, the light that shines the farthest will shine the brightest at home. That was a great quote. There are times that we think, if I could just go out and be a missionary, I would just do an awesome job in the mission field. How are you doing here? How silly would it be for us to make missionaries of people who aren't evangelizing, who aren't missionaries here where they're at? Do you know what's amazing? He gives them this commission, but not every disciple had the opportunity to go to the remotest parts of the earth. I mean, James was killed almost right away, very, very soon into the history of the church. And so this command, this commission, what our part is, this is, this is the church's commission, our part in this is just to do our part. So shine bright where you are. And when given the opportunity, shine there too. When you can reach out to your enemies, shine there. When, if, if for some reason you have the opportunity to go to a remote part of the earth, then go and shine the light of Jesus there too. So this is our job. Verse number 9 says, When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And I always find this very funny because you have this unbelievable scene of Jesus speaking this final commission and then being ascended into heaven and received into the Father. And that's just like the final stamp on everything that he did. Now he's back in heaven with his Father, this, this reunion. Just an incredible scene. And then these two guys are looking at them and saying, what are you doing? Why, why are you so busy standing up there? Don't worry. He's coming back someday. You need to worry about what he's told you to do. But so It's like, why are you looking at heaven? Because Jesus just ascended up in there. I mean, it's, it's a big deal, right? I, I'd be looking to. But they tell him to stop. They say, you got work to do. So, verse number 12. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come... In, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotus 
and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about 120. And I want to stop here, and we're going to just kind of skip a, a, a short portion of Scripture here. But these guys finally, they get back to their upper room. And I guarantee this, this meeting in the upper room was very different from what it had been prior to this. You have 120 people who have now seen the risen Jesus, who are just waiting for the Spirit to come. And they have 10 days to wait, 10 days to pray. In the next uh, passage of Scripture, what happens is they, they give the history of what happened to Judas Iscariot, his demise, and then they choose a new 12th apostle, Matthias. And so we're going we're gonna to skip over that passage, but I just want to think for a moment about what that upper room would have been looked like. I mean, now you have Peter, and his name is here first, and that, in a way, signifies he's still the leader. And so you have these men who have now know what Peter did, and they know he's been forgiven by Christ, and now they welcome him back as almost the leader of their group still. It's kind of a great picture of forgiveness. And then also in this room, you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. And now you have Jesus' brothers. You remember, Pastor mentioned this morning that Jesus had half-brothers? Well, here these half-brothers are there. But what's amazing about this is all through Jesus' life, before he was crucified, his brothers hated Jesus. Wanted nothing to do with him. Thought he was a, a false prophet, a fraud. Right? And they thought, naturally, evil of their mother for the fact that, that she had conceived him out of wedlock. And now, here's Mary with her sons, worshiping Jesus together, praying and waiting for the Spirit to come. I think it's just a wonderful picture. And I really do think this is God's grace in Mary's life, because he asked, I mean, we, from a human perspective, he asked a lot of Mary, right? And Mary did suffer a lot. And for years and years, a lot of people thought, Poor things of her. And then she watched her son be crucified. And you think, what is God doing? This is, this is so difficult for Mary. I can't imagine what she was feeling as she watched Jesus on the cross. But look at how this, that, that ashes, that destruction, that misery turns to beauty as Jesus rises again. And then as, as her other sons come to know Christ the Savior and come to wait for him. What a great picture there of what, what just God does in Mary's life. God is faithful to us. Let's move on to Acts chapter 2. So we've seen the commission given. We've seen the power promised. And now we'll see obedience demonstrated. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1, says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were with one accord in one place. So the day of Pentecost, the word Pentecost in, in Greek literally means the 50th. And it's just 50 days after the Passover meal. So Pentecost is also called, in the Old Testament, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. So during this time, they celebrated the harvest. That They were excited about that happening. It was kind of close to the, the time the harvest would be coming in. And then they were also celebrating the giving of the law. And so it kind of happened around the same time as the giving of the law in Mount Sinai. And so these people got together from all over the world. Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And so now in Jerusalem, you have the city swelling 10 times its normal size, very similar to Passover. There's three feasts every year this happened at. 
And so the city swells 10 times the normal size, filled with people from all over the world. Right? What a great time to have a message go out. So we'll look, we'll look at verse number 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they're all here in this room, and, and as they're here, something incredible happens. But I want you to notice, it doesn't just happen to Peter. Right? Peter's there, and it doesn't just happen to the apostles. We have 120 people gathered together in the upper room. They're all there together. And then it, all of a sudden, there's this sound of a rushing mighty wind, and cloven tongues as, of, as like fire come upon all of them. And they all go out, and they speak in tongues, and they are sharing the gospel. Verse 5, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together, and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Did you get that? So we're talking about the tongues happening. Pastors have been contesting as he went through the book of 1 Corinthians that this is a real language. And what happens is all these people from all around the world come and they hear the gospel being preached in their own language. And the word tongue is real, literally dialectos or dialect. So not only their own language, but Brother Cameron, he would hear it in, in a Scottish accent. I, I think it's cool the way God did that. Verse 7, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And now, how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and in Cappadocia and in Pontus and in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What means this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said, You men of Judea and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third day hour of the day. But this is which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he's going to go on to explain how Joel prophesied of a time where the Holy Spirit would come upon men and there would be incredible prophecies and just goes in from this point to an incredible presentation of Jesus Christ. He, he gives the gospel. He, he goes into the history of Israel. He pulls out um, prophecies of David and he says these were all pointing to Jesus Christ. And so he preaches this wonderful sermon at Pentecost, and at the end of that, thousands come to know Christ as Savior. It's just the, the foundation of the church. It's a wonderful time. I mean, this is the greatest evangelistic service that has ever been held, is here. It's, it's so exciting what's going on. And the work that Jesus gave to the disciples, that great commission, it begins. It's happening. And it's happening in a way that nobody could have ever guessed. And it's happening with power that nobody could have ever imagined. 
And so what I want to do tonight is first I want to give you a few observations about this story. I'm sure many of those you know about or have noticed, but I want to bring them to the forefront of your minds. And then we're quickly going to ask a few questions. So the first observation is this. Effort without the Holy Ghost is foolish, futile, and fruitless. If the church, if, if Peter, who knew all of those things and spent all that time with Jesus and had been forgiven by Jesus and commissioned by Jesus, set out before the Spirit had come, his effort would be in vain. And the point for us is that anything we do without the Holy Spirit is a waste of time. It is useless, it is fruitless, it is futile. The second observation is this. Some things we don't need to know. In the story, we find very clearly that there are things that we need to know and things that we don't need to know. And the things that we need to know are very abundantly clear. Was Jesus' commission, was it at all ambiguous? They say, something's going to happen, and when that thing happens, you'll know it. And then when you, when you know it, then you've got to go somewhere and do something. Right? But just wait, you'll know what to do when the time comes. I mean, his, his command, his commission is very clear. The Spirit will come upon you, so wait for him. Don't do anything before that. The Spirit's going to come on you, and you are going to be witnesses. You're going to tell people about what you've seen and what you've experienced about me in Jerusalem and, and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. I mean, he's, he's giving all of the places. So he didn't say, in the whole world. He, like, says specifically these places, Right? He was abundantly clear. And can I tell you something? Christians spend way too much time wondering about things we don't need to know and not enough time worrying about the things that we are abundantly clear to us, that we do know. Right? There are so many commands I can guarantee. Things in your life, if, if we were to look at your life, say, don't you know it's wrong to do this? Or don't you know Jesus wants you to do this? Or don't you think you should be doing a better job of sharing the gospel? And you say, yeah, I know that's absolutely clear. And then we spend all our time wondering what day Jesus is going to come back. Right? It's not for you to know the times, okay, the specific time, or the seasons. And, and the word seasons is just the opportunity. It, it's, I mean, it's, you're not even get close to knowing. If you pick a date, you're going to be wrong. And we get so tied up in these little inconsequential things or things that aren't for us to know. Even if they're of importance, they're not for us. And we maybe miss the very clear things in Scripture. And something that's very clear is the Spirit has come upon us, upon believers, for a purpose. It's very clear. The third observation is that Peter was forgiven and reinstated by Jesus and the others. It just... (laughs) Jesus' forgiveness of Peter is mind-boggling, right? It is amazing that you hear a guy curse and swear and say, I don't know this man And you look him in the eye right after he says it, and he runs away weeping, but then he goes and hides. It's amazing to see the extent of Peter's disloyalty to Jesus and then how incredible Jesus' forgiveness is, isn't it? But it's Jesus. He's God. He's perfect. I mean, maybe we expect that of him. But it's, I think, an incredible thing to see how the other disciples react. Now, I, I kind of understand it because Peter, made a, Peter failed miserably, but they failed pretty badly in their own right. And so maybe they all felt like we're all in the same boat and we're all... And, and the thing is, 
they're right. Right? I mean, they all failed miserably, and they're all in the same boat. But that's, I think, where we get confused. Because we see people mess up. What's going on? You know, we, we see people's histories, their pasts, and then we assume that means that they can't be used, that they shouldn't be forgiven, that whatever, right? And we feel somewhat justified in this because, you know, they did something that was really bad. But, can I tell you something? Peter did something that was really bad, and so did the apostles, and they all saw themselves as in the same boat, and Jesus forgave them, and so they moved on together as a team, forgave one another, moved past it, and here they're in one accord, praying together for the Spirit to come. It, this is, this is a, kind of a neat thing that we find in these verses. We don't need to understand everything about another person's past or their history. We don't, what we need to do is understand we're all in the same boat, we all have the same heart, and we need to all be willing to move forward together for the cause of Christ. Fourth observation, there were only 120 there. I mean, I know that at some point, 500 saw Jesus. So there was at least 500 followers of Jesus alive at that point. You can't really see a risen Christ and not become a follower of him. Okay, there's no indication that they were all followers at the time they saw him. But from that point on, they certainly were. Um, but here we have 120 people. It's not a huge group. It's a pretty impossible task, starting with a, a fairly small group of people. This was God's plan. Only 120 there. And the, the fifth thing that I notice is that, humanly speaking, this was a bad plan carried out by unqualified people, right? So we see all these things, and we think about them, and we say, what is really, what is really going on in Jesus' mind? What, what is he really trying to get at? Why did he come up with a plan like this one? I mean, what is he trying to show very clearly through this plan, humanly speaking, that is a terrible plan? I think there is something. And the final thing that I want us to, to recognize is that God did all of this so his power would be demonstrated in our weakness. All of this, this whole plan, it takes the, the silliest human plan possible to take unqualified people who have failed you over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and say, now you're going to do this impossible mission. The whole thing sounds crazy. It doesn't make any sense at all. But what we see there is this insane amount of weakness in humanity, okay, that everything they did up to this point is basically fail. And then you see, see God say, I'm going to take that and do something as incredible as reach the nations with the gospel. It doesn't make any sense. But it's God's power on full display. And so when you look at this story, you never say, man, Peter was so smart. If we could get a guy like Peter today... We'd have it made. Christianity would just explode. No, because it's never about personality. God takes weakness and shows his strength in it. That's exactly what Paul said, right? That he, that he would glory in his weakness because in my weakness, God's strength is made perfect. It's, it's, it's shown. It's demonstrated. I'd rather have weakness so that God can work through me in a more powerful way. The problem is we despise our weakness. We think of our weakness as this massive barrier to our Christian service. 
We just think if I was more gifted, if I was better at something, if I was better looking, if I could sing better, if I could preach better, if I could, you know, be kinder, if, if I knew what to say when people were grieving, if I had all of these things, I would just be a better servant. And God says, no, your weakness, even your brokenness and your sin, the fact that you know that, that you, you've recognized where you're coming from, that is what makes you a good tool for me to use. Because I can show my power through somebody like you. All right, those are my observations. Let's get to the four questions, and they'll be very, very quick. First question is, who did the Spirit actually empower? The Holy Spirit didn't only empower Peter. It didn't only empower a very small group of people. The, the Spirit empowered all these groups, of, all these people. And so you have this group of 120 people, and you have... 119 of them going about individually and doing personal evangelism, right? They're telling people, they're coming up to individuals, and and the Spirit is working through them in a way where when they share the wonderful works of God with the person in front of them, that person hears in their own language. But they weren't all standing up giving wonderful speeches about God's work throughout history and how it led to the cross and how Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world. That's not what all of them were doing. Only one guy out of 120 that stood up and did that. But they were all endued with the Spirit to be witnesses. So you get the point there. Who did he empower? He empowered all the believers that were present. And he had all the believers go out and share the gospel. And just because one of them stood up while the others listened and kind of supported him, doesn't make that one guy more spirit-filled than the rest. It was all of them that were sent out to do the work, and they all did the work. Question number two. Why this group of people? We kind of covered this already, but it wasn't their position and culture. It wasn't their natural gifting. It wasn't their eloquence. It wasn't anything social. In fact, all of those things pointed away from choosing them. God chose those people to do what they did because of their weakness. Question number three. What part of this is relevant for us? John Brown in the 18th century said, when men surrender themselves to the Spirit of God, they will learn more concerning God and Christ in the atonement and immortality in a week than they would learn in a lifetime apart from the Spirit. As a believer in Christ, you have to know that the most important thing that's in your life is the Spirit of God. There is is nothing more important. And when we surrender ourselves to the Spirit and we walk in the Spirit, and we obey the Spirit, and, and we go to the Word of God, and we say, Spirit of God, please help me understand this, and we, we pray in the Spirit, and we um, share the Gospel in the Spirit. When we start doing these things in the Spirit, then we get to know God. And when we don't, then we fail on our own. And maybe even sometimes we feel like we succeed on our own, but it really, in the scheme of things, it doesn't matter. Unfortunately, we are fairly used to neglecting the Spirit, and so it's relevant for us because... The Spirit of God that was given to them is also inside every person who who trusts Christ, every believer. Edward Beecher in the 19th century said, I should as soon attempt to raise flowers if there were no atmosphere, or produce fruits if there were neither light nor heat, as to regenerate men if they did not believe there was a Holy Ghost. The the mission we've been given, anything you've been given to do by God, is absolutely impossible. More impossible than raising flowers without atmosphere. 
We need the Holy Spirit. It is our only hope. So what must we do? All of this, I hope you've seen, I hope is clear, points to the fact that we need the Spirit, that we've been given a commission, that your weakness is irrelevant. You have the Spirit of God, go out and serve Him. So what do we do? We obey. It's really not, I mean, I know it's hard. I know it's really, really hard at times. But it's not that difficult. It's not that hard to understand, right? You've been given a commission. We, there's things that are in the Bible are so abundantly clear to us. So what do we do? Let's just go out and serve him. We got one life, don't we? This life is all that there is to serve God. And we'll have eternity to live with him. And that's a wonderful thought. But we never get to go back from that eternity and redo this, right? I often think if I could redo my high school years, I wish I could. I wish there were some things I wouldn't do, and I wish there were some things that I did do, and I wish there were some people that I told about the gospel, but I can't do that, and I can't even relive this morning. What I can do is I can try and say from this point on, I'm going to try and walk by the Spirit, I'm going to try and live in the Spirit's power, I'm going to try and obey the commission that's, that's been given to us so clearly. The church isn't just a leadership. The church is not we, you know, you bring people to church and then we evangelize them. How this whole thing works is that God's people go out and they're witnesses of what Christ has done in their life. That's how it should work for, for every one of us. How do we know if we're being led by the Spirit? I'll give you one thing to think about and then we'll be done. If Jesus is preeminent in everything that you say and do, you know you're being led by the Spirit. You know what the Spirit does? It points people to Jesus. Not to himself. It points people to Jesus and the work on the cross. And so, if, you, if you're walking in the Spirit, then you will not be able to help but point people to Jesus. You will be preeminent in your life. Let's pray.